Hi, and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen, an editor at theweek.com. This week I learned that trees rest at night. Now, they're not dreaming or snoring like us humans, but they do undergo physical changes after the sun goes down that can be likened to day-night cycles. For this study, scientists focused on birch trees in Austria and Finland. At regular intervals between sunset and sunrise, they scan the trees with laser beams so as not to disturb their slumber with a camera flash. And they found that the branches of the birch trees drooped by as much as 10 centimeters at the tips by the end of the night. Now, for tree-observing scientists, the reason behind the droop should be obvious. Photosynthesis, which is the process by which plants use sunlight to create food from carbon dioxide and water. Without sunlight, there is no photosynthesis, which means there's a drop in water pressure in the trees. The tree's branches and leaf stems are less rigid and therefore droop under their own weight. So the drooping could be a basic physical response to the lack of sunlight and therefore water. But scientists also point to another interesting theory, that the trees are saving energy during the night. During the day, branches and leaves are angled higher to catch more sunlight, which is energy intensive. So at night, the trees may actually be resting their branches and conserving their energy for the bright activity of the daylight hours which is much more in line with our human understanding of rest and circadian rhythms. This is the first time that scientists have been able to identify the drooping effect in full-blown trees. So the next step is to see if other species of trees besides the birch sleep, and if those trees carry genes linked to circadian rhythms. This will help us suss out if the tree's drooping habits is purely a response to the loss of water pressure, or if, perhaps, it is to get a good night's rest before their big day. It was common playground knowledge when I was a kid that if you swallowed your gum, it'd sit in your gut like a rock taking seven years to digest. But this week, I finally found out the truth. To understand what happens to gum, first we have to understand how our bodies digest food. When you eat something, you first chew and break up the food with your teeth and tongue into manageable pieces that you can swallow. As you chew and as your muscles push the food bits through the digestive tract, the enzymes in your saliva and stomach help to break up that food a little bit further. These enzymes also trigger a chemical process in your body that converts the food into nutrients like sugar and fat that your body can use. These same enzymes also trigger a chemical process in your body that converts the foods into nutrients like sugars and fats that your body can use. And finally, those brutally hardworking stomach acids get to work dissolving what's left of the food into mush that passes comfortably through your intestines and out of the body altogether. So let's talk about gum. Of course, the whole point of gum is that it can't be broken down by your teeth and tongue. And the way it can't be broken down is because it contains either a natural or synthetic rubber base, which gives it that gummy consistency. The most common rubber base is something called butyl rubber, which I'll have you know is also used in tires and basketballs. 
So when you're chewing gum and you accidentally or on purpose swallow it, it goes through your digestive tract as a whole wad. Your enzymes are able to get to work breaking down some of the ingredients in gum, like oils, carbohydrates, and alcohols. But that pesky rubber base stays intact. Not even your stomach acids can work any wonders on this resilient product. So yes, it's true that part of the gum survives digestion, but it doesn't at all stay in your body for seven years or anywhere close to it. Your body actually has no problem whatsoever moving that lump of gum through your digestive system and out the other end. There are actually plenty of foods that don't have a rubber base that we only partially digest, like seeds and corn, that pass through in the very same way. The search for extraterrestrial life on Mars began in the 19th century, but speculation about the possibility of life began long before then, mainly because Mars is relatively close to Earth, but also because of some really interesting discoveries like evidence of water and also organic compounds in the soil. Water and organic compounds are the building blocks of life. Of course, we haven't yet discovered life on Mars, but according to an article in Discover, that may be because we're thinking of it all wrong. We're forced to think about life on another planet in the context of our earthly rules. In fact, life on Mars may look so different than it does on Earth that we may not even know to recognize it as such. Life on Mars could use chemicals we've never seen before or wouldn't even know to look for, which is a pretty mind-blowing hypothesis, if you ask me. A German scientist named Jupe Huthkooper has an interesting theory. Mars is extremely cold, but life forms there could deal with the extreme weather by incorporating hydrogen peroxide into their biology. By mixing it with water, they would avoid freezing and be able to survive in the harsh climate. Of course, on Earth, hydrogen peroxide is like bleach, a useful disinfectant, but would be harmful in our biology. But Cooper suggests because we don't consider hydrogen peroxide as a potential biological makeup, we're not looking for it on Mars. He even goes so far as to suggest that during a 1970s Mars landing, the rover may have accidentally killed potential hydrogen peroxide-based life forms by doing a basic Earth-based experiment. Now, Huth Cooper's theory has been criticized by other scientists who say no hard evidence of hydrogen peroxide bacteria has emerged. But his big picture idea that we need to expand our search beyond Earth's biological bounds is gaining some traction, which is perhaps proof that breaking rules could be good for science. And finally, this week I learned about a bizarre but intriguing new event in South Korea called the Relax Your Brain Competition. It is literally a contest to see who can be the most relaxed. Participants are not allowed to sleep, eat, or use any electronic devices. They aren't even allowed to check their watch or even move around too much. In photos, you can see them sitting quietly on a patch of grass. The most recent contest lasted for 90 minutes, and whoever had the most consistent heartbeat throughout won. The competition started in 2014 as more of a stunt by local artists, but people really responded to the idea, so they continued. 
South Korea actually has the highest percentage of smartphone-owning citizens, so a relax-your-brain competition, which forces you to stay away from those devices for more than an hour, appeared to be a welcome break. This year, organizers received 1,500 applications for the 60 spots in the competition, so it seems they're on to something. According to a lot of recent research, we could all use some forced relaxation slash no screen time to boost creativity. Studies have showed that unstructured time where you aren't using technology, like in the shower, going for a run, or while swimming, are some of the best times to let your creative juices flow. But it seems it's increasingly difficult for us, particularly younger generations, to separate ourselves from our devices. A recent study asked 1,000 students to live without their phones or iPads or electronics for 24 hours. More than half of them had given up within two hours. The rest reported an overwhelming sense of emptiness and boredom. But the response to the South Korean competition Relax Your Brain should give us hope. Maybe we can live without our phones if we're competing for a prize and it's only for 90 minutes. And that does it for this week's episode of This Week I Learned. For more, go to theweek.com slash audio. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating or a review on iTunes. I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening.